So new series today, seven weeks, sticks and stones, don't downplay the power of your words. We're going to look at what the Bible says about our speech. I've been wanting to preach this series for a long time. First two sermons of the series are just going to provide some theology, a theological framework, uh, a foundation, if you will, for understanding words. And I couldn't think of a better place to start this series than Jesus' words, which all, most of you know from Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37. Open up your Bibles there to Matthew 12, because what we find here may be one of the Bible's deepest, most profound, spiritually practical statement about words. Contained in this brief interaction where Jesus is teaching people, but specifically he's having a hostile interaction with the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And this is what he said. And this is God's word, his holy word. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. Speaking to the leaders of the day. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Mm. Let's define some terms. Let me just go, let me just take you to what I would underline, what I would highlight as the main point of Jesus' short speech. It's right in verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's the problem with our words? Jesus gives a vivid, clear explanation of the issue. The key verse is the one I just read. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. With just 10 words, and we could easily skip over them, and undoubtedly we have in our Bible reading plans, skipped over these. Jesus teaches this profound truth. With 10 words, he explains how you and I function. With 10 words, he explains how humans operate. He explains why we think what we think, why we do what we do, why we say what we say. And he directs our understanding of all human motivations back to one source, the heart, the heart. And his primary perfect 
illustration or example for the inescapable influence of the heart is words. Now, when the Bible uses the language of the heart, it's, it's illustrating that the heart is the center of the human life. It's the source of our whole inner life. It's the term the Bible uses to define the seat of the physical life, the spiritual life, the mental life, the emotional life. With our hearts we think, with our hearts we feel, with our hearts we do, with our hearts we speak, with our hearts we act. Our God-given ability to speak, to use words, is inextricably linked to the center of who we are, our heart. Nothing more centrally defines who you are and why you do what you do and why you think what you think and why you say what you say than your heart. Heart controls everything. All of our actions, all of our reactions, all of our interactions, from the smallest, most inconsequential decisions to the biggest, most life-shaping decisions, everything flows out of your heart. Words matter because they flow from your heart. And I keep pointing to this area of my body as if it was the physical heart. But the heart is like your soul. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the center and the source of our whole inner lives. Words matter and only matter because what the heart is and what the heart does matters. A struggle with our words is really not a struggle for finding the right vocabulary. It's a struggle of the heart. You don't need to go to the dictionary to find the real meaning of your words. You need to go to your heart. So we're... We're defining what the heart is, what he means by that. Another word that is used here is abundance. In Greek, the word is parisima, overflow. What remains? The excess. It's only used a few times in the New Testament. One, Luke uses it in the same story. He tells the same story and, and uses the same word here, parisima. Mark uses it in a different story. It's when Jesus is feeding the 4,000. Remember, he had a few loaves, a few fishes, and he fed 4,000 people. And Mark says, um, when they went, when they, when, they, when they were all finished and they were satisfied in eating, people went and picked up what was remaining. They picked up the parisima, the overflow. Paul talks about the overflow when he talks about our, fi our finances, our, our resources. And he says that we should give out of our abundance, our parisima, because one day you might be in need and you might need the abundance of someone else. It's the only time in the New Testament it's used. The words we speak, they bubble up and out 
of the overflow of our hearts, just like pouring too much water into a glass. So what's Jesus' main point? Your words do what your heart has already done. Think about that for a second. Your words do what your heart has already done. This is the, the point that Jesus is making, and it's, and it's an important theological one. It's an foundational if we're going to make any headway at all in understanding the power of our words. It's to recognize that your words do what your heart has already done. Jesus is in this argument. I've told you he's arguing with the Pharisees, and he's arguing with the Pharisees. If you look at the heading of chapter 12, Jesus says as Lord of the Sabbath, he's doing, he's doing these healings, and he's doing work on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders are really tired of him for this and are really pick, taking issue with him for this. And they actually accuse him, in the verses prior to the ones we read this morning, they accuse him of actually doing them in the name and in the power of Satan. And Jesus just dismantles that argument. But then he goes on to, to tell them this story about good trees and bad trees. Good trees being those that bear fruit and bad trees those that bear rotten fruit. He's using like these negative illustrations and these positive illustrations. There can be really bad overflows of the heart. Do I need to convince you of such? Man, wouldn't it be embarrassing if someone started rolling the video of our lives? I'm certain there's some things that we've said that we wish we could take back. Those words were an overflow of the heart. Now, there can be really good overflows of the heart, too. We're going to talk about that a lot in this series. But he's using these two trees to illustrate a good overflow and a bad overflow. I had an illustration of my own for a bad overflow. We... Uh, we recently had a bad overflow in the downstairs toilet. And this is how, how I got alerted to it. The, the, the toilet system, the plumbing system downstairs, if it detects that there's a problem and it can't, it can't discharge the contents of the bowl, then it begins to beep. Beep, beep. It's a loud beep. You can hear it downstairs. Well, I've got some kids that ignore the beep for a while. Just keep using the toilet. And then, Dad, the toilet's beeping. Mm. So, so I go downstairs and silence it and... Realize that I don't have time to deal with this, but I look and I see that I've got a major overflow problem that I'm going to just wait till my day off to deal with this. 
this is a rubber glove kind of, you know, rubber gloves on, open the lid, and it is just like thick brown stuff. I'm just being real. <laughs> and I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's not like you got, oh, Kenny, why are you saying that? You haven't dealt with this stuff? Brown water mess, and I start dealing with the overflow. But I had, I had to actually make a, I had to go into the recycling bin and, and construct a cup that I could use to bail out the overflow so that I could see where the problem was. Now, imagine for a moment if my approach to dealing with the problem was the following. Aim, when you go to the store, pick up a couple extra bottles of Febreze. Because I just need them. I just need to squirt Febreze down here. Or, or maybe I, I decide to, the way to deal with the problem is, okay, I, I've got a problem here and I've got an overflow. I'll bail it out and then I'll leave that nasty cup there for the next person who goes to the bathroom and they can bail out their problems. Or maybe I could just hang a sign on the door. If it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, you just create a serious problem, you clown. But that wouldn't deal with the overflow. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't deal with the source of the problem, right? That would be ridiculous. Some of you, some of us, are creating worse messes with, than my toilet backup with your words. You've created incredibly stinky situations because of the way you use words. And others are having to deal with your regular eruptions and for a moment, you feel bad for what you've done, and you regularly resolve to do better, but your efforts to improve are the equivalent of buying a case of Febreze and occasionally breaking it out to spray a flowery smell on something that smells horrific. And you never really change because you haven't dealt with the source of the obstruction. You haven't dealt with the source of the problem. You got to get down deeper. You got to deal with the obstruction. You got to deal with your clogged, sinful heart because your words do what your heart has already done. Our talk issues are really heart issues. And until the heart is changed by God's grace, our words won't change. The point Jesus is making is this. Our conduct reveals our character. 
You with me? Dude, our conduct reveals our character. Our conduct, especially our speech, reveals our character. The fruit that pours from our lips is evidence of what lies in our hearts. Therefore, the only remedy is a radical change of heart. The only remedy for a severely clogged toilet is a radical removal of the obstruction. Which, by the way, in case you're wondering, I got it. I dug down. I got it. Had to buy a new part. Toilet working great. The only remedy, and this is the most important part of what Jesus is saying here, and I think we could miss this if we just start talking about our words, if we just start dealing with the fruit and we don't deal with the root, we don't deal with the source of the problem. It's easy to do this. You can get better for a little while with your speech if you monitor it. This isn't a sermon just about curse words. This isn't a series. This is a series about the heart. And in the context, Jesus is saying that in the end, there really are only two kinds of people in the world. There's only two. That's what he's telling the Pharisees. That's what he's telling everybody who's listening to him. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those that have a good treasure in their heart. They have this good heart. And out of the overflow of that heart comes good fruit, good things. And then there's bad people, bad hearts. And out of the overflow of the heart, the bad things come out. And here's the news. The news is this. That the bad news is that we all, apart from God's grace, are in the category of a bad heart that produces bad fruit apart from the work of God's grace to do a radical renovation, renewal of your heart. That's why we talk about the gospel here. That's why we talk about gospel culture here. That's why we talk about Jesus so much because Jesus came to radically renovate your heart so that you, the possibility exists that you can actually say things that powerfully encourage and support and build up other people. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, suffered, died on the cross, just as we were singing about in worship, and then he rose again to rescue you, to radically renovate your heart. The only people in the world with the good heart that he's speaking about are those that have decided to say, I need you, Jesus. They're the only ones. The only people in the category and in the world with a bad heart are those who have, up until this point, told Jesus that they have, want nothing to do with him. They, they reject him. They don't choose the path of repentance. They don't choose the path of following him. They don't choose the path of saying that I need you, Jesus, and I want you in my life. This is the difference between the two people that Jesus 
is speaking about. What a person truly is determines what they say and what they do. So, so when you uh, get into an argument or you get into a conflict and you say something really hurtful, and then you say, I didn't mean to say that. Yes, you did. Yes, you did, because your words do what your heart has already done. You did mean to say it. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't apologize. doesn't mean you shouldn't do something about that. But you did mean to say it. It came up out of your heart. And so if we, as a church, become... Uh, if we become very attentive to our words, thinking that we can just make, we can deal with the problem at the, at the mouth level, we'll fail. We'll be like people who go to the grocery store, have a dying fruit tree in the backyard, go to the grocery store, buy apples and staple them all over the dead tree. That's how foolish that will be. We'll make no headway because the issue is the heart. You guys with me? You understand what I'm saying? By your words, your words do what your heart has already done. Now, let me go to the section of Scripture where, my sermon, where in my sermon prep and in my study, I got scared. I read something that I've read many times. But I read it again this week. And it sobered me. I just read it to you. I'll read it again. I tell you, Jesus said, on the day of judgment, people, that's us, will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus has just been speaking in the third person. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. And then he changes to the first person. And he says, I tell you. But I say, to you. Jesus is putting an emphasis on what he's saying here, and he wants every single one of us to feel it. There's a payday coming, church. The day of days. And on that day, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us that we will give 
an account for every careless word spoken. That's staggering. It's estimated that the average human being speaks between, you ready for this? Between 10,000 to 20,000 words a day. That's a pretty big range, though. But 10,000 is a lot, right? So you, you probably minimally, even if you're the quiet, quietest among us, speak 10,000 words a day. I'll put myself in the 20,000 camp. 20,000 words a day. And if Solomon is right when he says, where words are many, sin is not lacking, then that is 20,000 possibilities to mess up. If I live to be 80, I will have spoken 600 million words. And Jesus has just told me that I'm going to give an account for all of them. I feel a little nervous in here. And it should. By careless words, what, what Jesus is talking about here is not joking around with the guys. By a careless word, what he means here is words that were uttered without any thought for the effect that they would have on other people. And what Jesus is saying, those words which you maybe didn't give much thought to, God says you should have paid or should pay careful attention to. Jesus is not saying that in the end, the only thing that matters are our words. That's completely false. And he's not saying that we're justified by our works or by our words The Bible tells us over and over and over again that we're saved by grace through faith. What Jesus is saying here is that words carelessly spoken are eternally important. Words carelessly spoken, eternal importance. Careless words spoken can be temporarily important too. One sentence, one tweet, one word spoken the wrong way at the wrong time to the wrong audience can ruin your life. I don't follow baseball that closely, but I read the story about John Rocker. Star relief pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. Had a bad game, and after it, he gave an expletive and an insult-filled interview to a Sports Illustrated reporter who then printed the things that he said. Usually, it's arm trouble that ruins a pitcher's career. 
In this case, it was mouth trouble, more accurately, heart trouble. And that careless interview he did that day ruined his Major League Baseball career. After the interview was done, most people in Major League Baseball considered him a pariah, an outcast, someone you should stay away from, a cancer in the clubhouse, and no team in baseball would touch him. What Jesus is saying here is that words carelessly spoken will cost you more than your job. Jesus is saying that words carelessly spoken are eternally important. The words I've used over the course of my life will either confirm or deny whether I've truly experienced heart transformation by God's grace. It's a sobering reality to think that what we say is a reflection of what is in our hearts. I'll tell you what else is a sobering reality. It's a sobering reality to think that what we don't say is also a reflection of our hearts. And I was talking with my wife about this because I didn't feel particularly convicted this week about all the ways in which I'm, I'm saying things that are having this, this destructive effect upon people. But then I turned it because Jesus is talking about a good heart too that bears the overflow of the good heart is good fruit. So I began, and I want to ask you to begin to ask yourself to not only evaluate the negative use of words, but the absence of all the things that you could have said that would have had an encouraging effect, a comforting effect, a consoling effect, a building up effect, a supportive effect. And you didn't say them. You didn't say them. I don't know why. Maybe you were mad. So when you get mad, you don't say mean things. You just stop talking. You'll give an account for that. How are we doing at using this God-given ability to speak We're made in the image of God and we speak. We have this God-given superpower to speak words of encouragement. How are you doing with that? That's God's expectations for our words. Here's a practical exercise. We did it this week as a leadership team. It took us 30 minutes and we did it with like 10 people. And it was powerful. All you need is a pen and some post-it notes and, you, and you, you take each person in the room and you write down something on a post-it note that you admire about them. So we just did that for every person in the room. And then, after we wrote it down, we took time to share what we admired about them. Guys, it was powerful. It was powerful to hear that the things that we wrote down about people, they were themes that emerged. People left incredibly encouraged it took 30 minutes not even out of our day to powerfully build up and encourage and I dare say wouldn't you say that we need to do that more you can do it today a word of caution to those who suppose themselves to be religious 
Because that's who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to these people that make these pious professions in the name of God. These are religious leaders that he's talking to. And they're opposing Jesus, and they can't hide the fruit that's in their lives. Hatred, intolerance, injustice. What they did showed what kind of people they were. What they said showed what kind of people they were. And in the sense that we are religious, and I think in the positive sense, we should be religious. We should have religious affections. We should have affections for Jesus, and that should result in behavior that's in line with the things that he says. I expect people who aren't Christians to talk like they're not Christians. I expect people who aren't Christians to say things that don't sound like Christ. I expect that. What has become increasingly troubling to me is people who profess to be Christians but speak in a manner that grieves Jesus. Christians, taking the name of Christ and then speaking to others, maybe people they disagree with. You certainly see this online. People who are harsh and rude and inconsiderate and belittling and insulting. And as people who profess Christ, he expects better from us. John Newton, famous writer of Amazing Grace, pastor to church, and he was concerned for his church over these things. He was concerned for his church about the way in which they use their words because our words do what our heart has already done. And he said this, Sinful talk is where professions of faith die a thousand deaths. Just because it's become increasingly popular just to tell it like it is doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't give thought to the words that they use. Whether they're typing them in with their thumbs on their phone or speaking them out to someone. Out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. 
This is what Jesus tells us. We're all going to leave here and talk. (laughs) We need this sermon series. I hope you feel that. I hope you feel like you need this series. Because if you're sitting there saying, I don't feel like I really need this series, you really need this series. We need to hear what Jesus says and the Bible says about our speech. And I've just jotted down four things that I want to pray for this series. So I think we've got them here. These are the the ways you can join me in praying. We'll we'll have this on the resources page on Church Center, sending it out in the weekly email. These are my hopes and prayers. I'm praying for conviction. That, and I want you to join me as well, that we'd be deeply convicted about words that we use that are wrong, wrongly used words. I'm praying for motivation, that we would be motivated and inspired by the power of words rightly used. So I'm praying for conviction. I'm praying for motivation. I'm praying for vision, that we would see the gospel, the hope of Jesus as the remedy for our troubled talk. And I'm praying for transformation, that we would see how the gospel transforms our words, turning them into conduits of God's grace. These are the things that I'm praying. May God use this sermon series to season our words with love for him, with love for others, with love for the world, so that what we say will give grace to those who hear. Amen? Amen. Let's just take a moment of silence. We'll leave those up for just a moment. Let's take one minute, a moment of silence, and pray one or all of these things as you're thinking about what you've just been heard and the word of the Lord, especially Jesus' words in Matthew 12. Just one minute.